0: Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon. On Profiles we talk to notable artists, scholars and musicians and get to know the person behind the persona. Tonight we have the pleasure of talking to an international theatre director, actor, teacher and artistic director who is recently in Bloomington to direct Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream for Indiana University. He is British-born Gavin Cameron Webb. Gavin, thank you for being here today, and welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Murray. Nice to be here. So you were born in England. I was. And I'm interested in your early theatrical experiences there. Growing up, what was it like before you came to the
1: United States? Well, you know, that's assuming I had any early theatrical experiences in England. As far as the theatre is concerned, the first show I remember seeing is, was Peter Pan. And um, I loved the crocodile. That was my favorite character. The crocodile and the ticking clock is what I remember. And Captain Hook, of course, but not as much as the crocodile. And there were the Red Indians as well, now Native Americans.
0: Was there a moment that sort of woke you up and said, gosh, this is the land of make-believe I want to be part of?
1: No, not at all. Although uh, one has to say that growing up in England in the 1950s was um, an experience from which we all desired to escape because it was pretty dreary at that particular time. It wasn't until the 60s that London really took off and became the uh, global force and capital and fun town or city, an international city, thriving and bustling that it is now. Um, When I was growing up, it was still a lot of war damage a lot of bombed out buildings, a lot of uh, areas in the East End especially that were laid waste during the Blitz and had not been rebuilt. And that was true up through the beginning of the 1960s. I remember going on an interview um, to a hospital because I was thinking about um, going to medical school in the East End of London and um, walking through blocks of complete emptiness where the bombs had fallen and uh, buildings hadn't been rebuilt. All changed now, of course. So how was it that you came to the United States? Oh, I came to the United States because I really didn't know what else to do. I'd always had a fascination with the United States ever since um, I could sort of think for myself and went to see movies. Uh, And uh, I always wanted to come here. Uh, So eventually I did. I came came first to... um, Work for my father's law firm in New Orleans, and uh, then later I I came to graduate school, went to graduate school in at Ohio University. Now, I was I was working in the advertising industry in London at the time, and decided that I would take an assistantship at Ohio University and get a master of fine arts in theater directing, which is what I did. But the contrast between um, Mayfair in London, where I was working, and Athens, Ohio, where I ended up, was quite considerable. I remember on on the bus down from Columbus because Athens, like Bloomington, is some distance away from an airport. One landed in Columbus and took the bus down to Athens in the southeast corner of Ohio, going through uh, small towns littered with car wrecks and car junkyards and so on. It's on the edge of Appalachia. I really, really began to wonder if I had made the right decision coming into Athens, Ohio. But it was a very good uh, training program for all that. Uh, Perhaps because it was so monastic, you couldn't go anywhere. You were sort of stuck there. So you had to study.
0: In 1972, you became head of the Studio Theatre and a resident actor with the Rochester
1: Shakespeare Theatre. I in New did a York. job I had no right in getting. I was—I had graduated from Ohio University and gone out to spend the summer in Wisconsin doing summer stock, being a stage manager and actor. And uh, as everyone had to do then, and possibly still do now, I had to go to New York to start my career. So um, on the way to New York. I had heard that there was a new theater company being founded in Rochester, New York, called the Rochester Shakespeare Theater. And I thought I'd go and audition for them. And I did. And they offered me a job. They had no right to offer me a job. My audition was just terrible. At least one of the pieces was, the the classical piece, of course. But they did. They offered me a job. And and, um, I wouldn't have, but (laughs) I, I couldn't complain. Uh, I was very fortunate, and then I had to go on to New York because of the job I auditioned in uh, August or september, and the job didn 't start till January, so I had three or four months to fill so i went went on to New York and I stayed with friends in the East Village uh, and slept on the floor for three or four months and worked in an insurance firm corporation in the on Sixth avenue somewhere and um did some off-off Broadway. I played Saint-Just in Danton's Death uh, during that time, waiting to, waiting to actually start my professional career because this job was an equity job, and I got into the union straight away, which was just a stroke of fortune, a bit of luck to launch the career. And um, after a season and a half, the artistic director, um, I asked the artistic director if I could direct something you know, in our rehearsal hall off-site. And he said, fine. So I started to do that. I did The Caretaker then. It was my first production that I did. And then um, I'm happy to say that two of the actors who were in it are still working. Uh, One actually has gone to England and become an English citizen. (laughs) And uh, the other is working in the regional theatres in the US. Uh, And we also did a, um, a school's tour of the Scottish play we rewrote the Scottish play to be uh, 40 minutes long. I can say Macbeth now because we're not in a theatre. We rewrote it to be 40 minutes long and to go through all sorts of different television conventions. So when Mrs. Macbeth became mad, we used it, We staged it as a soap opera. And uh, at the beginning, when when all the exposition is taking place, we used that as a quiz show because there's so many arcane terms in that. It was a great hit. We managed to do it with five actors and one trunk of costumes and props, and uh, went around all the tours, all the schools in Western New York.
0: Did you have any mentors
1: or other directors that influenced your early career? I did have uh, some mentors, yes. I had, uh, in Athens, Ohio, an an English director came over. His name was Donald McKechnie. And I'm not quite sure why he came. And he wasn't either which was a little bizarre, Uh, but he had been working at the National Theatre with Laurence Olivier, and uh, for some reason, he had decided that he needed to be away from the National Theatre, and he never went back. And something obviously happened, but he never told us what it was that happened. But he was a breath of fresh air, of course, being a a practicing English director, and... um, Uh, He was illuminating uh, and very influential, I think. Um, And he eventually wound up in Western New York as well at the Jiva Theater, where I worked after working at the Rochester Shakespeare Theater. And uh, he was deported um, by the immigration service because one day off, he and uh, his wife and um, one or two of the actors went to Niagara Falls and went across the bridge to Canada and were not allowed back in. Whereupon they were deported, and the theatre closed. And that's not not a very happy way of losing your job. But that's what happened. And then I had to go back to New York, and that took a bit of time to uh, to get another another job. And that was at the Missouri Repertory Theatre, um, and then picked up again. Because you you are in this business, as you know, uh, out of work quite a bit. Um, and uh, I always remembered that Olivier was out of work for eighteen months at the beginning of his career. So I thought, well, if that can happen, well, it's it's usual for everyone. I won't, I won't panic. Uh, although people around me would panic, I wouldn't. I wouldn't panic. I was just not a very pleasant experience, of course, being out of work. And you keep on trying and trying and trying and trying. And as you know, the business is a lot about rejection, especially at auditions. Let's go and read and. Uh, And not hear anything, but, you know, every so often.
0: You've held a number of academic positions at universities uh, around the United States. Uh, What were some of the highlights of your teaching career?
1: The highlights of my teaching career, I think, were two. One, teaching at the Juilliard School in New York because I had amazing students. And I was living in Manhattan at the time, just off Times Square in a tiny, tiny studio apartment, which is probably about the size of this room we're in now, with a very small bathroom and kitchen attached. And I used to walk up to Juilliard to teach. And the Juilliard School had immense rooms for rehearsal and scene scene work and so on. And it was such a delight to be in the middle of Manhattan and to be in a very, very big, big room. And sometimes it was a delight to be sitting in the school somewhere and hearing somebody practicing the opening bars of Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto over and over and over again uh, because, as you know, it's a, a world-famous music school as well as a drama school. Um, but I'm, I met some really terrific students there. Michael Langham was running the school at the time. And uh, I was I was directing uh Shaw and uh, then teaching a a class in script analysis. Uh, The other high point of my teaching career was at the State University of New York at Purchase, uh, which is not far from New York. I used to take the train up to White Plains, and uh, that department was run by a a very, very uh, good director, if not a brilliant director, whose name is Israel Hicks. Unfortunately, he died, I think, a couple of years ago. Uh, But he was a terrific man as well as a wonderful director. He was African-American and I think perhaps the only theater director I know who was also a professional football player. (laughs) (laughs) What a combination. (laughs) I know. It's a tremendous combination, isn't it? Uh,
0: Some people believe that acting and directing can be taught. Other
1: people believe it's an inherent talent or skill. Some people believe it can't be taught. What do you feel? They do, don't they? Um, it's an interesting debate. My own view is that the talent you have or you don't have, what you can teach is the skill and the technique. You can't teach talent if it's not there; it's not there. Um, so, if you are teaching at a school where they are rigorous about their uh, admission standards and you are you have students with talent, then you can do them a great service by teaching them various techniques and skills. Uh, if they don 't have any talent, no matter what you teach them it 's not going to make that much difference, um, in particular in terms of uh, a profession, uh, a career in the business it 's very, very hard, as you know uh, to to actually make a life in this business, this industry, but tremendously rewarding Well, you seem to be very successful at having done this <laughs> what's what 's the key to your success? Oh, I don't know that I am successful. I managed to keep working most of the time since I started for the last 40 years. My dream when I was um, in graduate school was to run a regional theatre, and I did. Uh, so I got there and it was almost like, well, now what? Now what do I do? I've, I've actually realized what I wanted to do passionately when I was in graduate school. And, of course, the job turned out to be a complete mirage. I mean not at all what I thought it was going to be like in graduate school, but, but, uh, but there we are. I had uh, been an artistic director in the early 1980s in Boston when I ran the Boston Shakespeare Company for a year and a half. And um, I realized then or was introduced then as to what what it actually was, what the job actually entailed. And I determined after being bounced out of Boston that uh, I would never do it again. It was a dreadful job and I never wanted to do it again. And I moved back to New York and I lived in New York for 10 years and directed all over the country and abroad. And um, – I rather got fed up with having to leave town all the time. Um, and, you know, you in New York, in Manhattan, you leave town, you come back, they've closed down your laundromat and your bank has moved and your favorite restaurant is no longer running business and, and so on. I thought it would be nice because you never do as a freelance director. It would be nice to have some sort of relationship with an audience because as a freelance director, you go in, uh, you cast the play usually in New York and you go somewhere – wherever and you direct the play you don't really know anything about the community you're in you have a couple of previews if you're lucky and then you leave it opens and you leave um, you have no idea how the play plays out its run how it's received by the community how they like it or loathe it what they had to say i mean the artistic director might let you know in a few months or not it's really of Uh, Not of much consequence because you're on to the next thing or the next thing and the next thing. And I thought that perhaps it might be interesting to have a dialogue, essentially, with an audience, which is why I went back and thought I would revisit being an artistic director, and I did. And I ended up in Buffalo, New York, running the Studio Arena Theatre, which was a a a lot B theater, which means that it had an annual budget of around four to five million. Um, to put on plays and a lovely house 634 seat uh, thrust stage Um, and I was there for 13 and a half years
0: I'd like to get back to that in a moment but right now it's time for your first musical selection
1: what Uh have you brought along Eric Satie's Nosian number four I think and what has special
0: significance
1: oh i love his, i love the piano as an instrument for one thing and i think uh, i'd have loved satie's gymnopédie since the, from many many decades and the nosien uh, i discovered more recently than that and uh, i love how evocative they are <laughs>
0: Listening to Profiles and our guest this evening is theatre director Gavin Cameron-Webb. I am Murray McGibbon. Gavin, you've directed over 40 professional productions all over the world. What are some of the
1: highlights of directing abroad? Some of the highlights of directing abroad, well, first that you're abroad. Uh, I love to travel and uh, I love to discover new cultures. And I think one of the highlights of discovering new cultures was... uh, directing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead in Cairo in Egypt, Um, obviously before the Arab Spring, but not too much before the Arab Spring. I was directing this at the American University in Cairo. And in Cairo, I had the sense or feeling of being more foreign than any other place I had ever traveled to. Um, And that includes Asia and uh, Japan and uh, Bali and Singapore and so on. But Cairo was truly a a quite alien sort of culture. I mean to begin with perhaps because the weekend is different from ours you know, the their weekend is Friday and Saturday and ours is Saturday and Sunday. So that was that was one big adjustment to get to get used to another mundane one was about crossing the street. Nobody stops in Cairo. There are literally no traffic lights. And no pedestrian crosswalks I mean there might be pedestrian crosswalks, but nobody stops for them, and they really don 't and you You could stand on the edge of the road for hours on end and, and wait for someone to stop, and they won 't and it 's a huge city of about seventeen to twenty to twenty three million no one could get a real count so so it never stops the noise never stops, and you sort of have to dance your way across the street um, and and hope you don 't get hit. It takes a sort of Little bit of courage to do that, uh, but once you've got the knack of it, it's fairly easy to do. Uh, but it is sort of adventurous, very much so. And I was directing a, a cast of students from all over the Middle East, um, and they were from different countries, and English was their third or fourth language. And um, I was not able to turn up to cast the play because I was doing a, I was doing a twelfth night. Um, at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival at the time. So uh, a gentleman, Mahmoud, cast the play for me, and we, uh, we did emails and photos by email and so on. And he told me that none of the students had ever read Hamlet and didn't know about it. And, of course, that's rather strange. But then if you think about it, it's not at all part of their culture. Why on earth should they have read Hamlet? Hamlet. So he showed them the Mel Gibson film so they had some idea of what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern was taking off from. Um, And then uh, we cast and we went into rehearsal and um, uh, they told me the whole script had to be translated into Arabic. Why did it have to be translated into Arabic? Because of the censor office script has to be submitted to the census office before it can be approved. This was obviously before the Arab Spring, before Mubarak, while Mubarak was still in power, um, has to be approved before it can be uh, performed. So the script was translated, sent off to the census office. That's fine. And at the preview, three women turned up uh, with the script. And they sat together and they talked all the way through the performance and uh, uh, I was convinced the next day that I was going to be called in and told I have to, uh, a whole list of things that I would have to change. Um, but apparently not. Apparently that was fine. It, it, this was of, uh, being in Cairo. I, I went to the most entertaining production meeting I've ever been to. And that was because um, we Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead requires a cart on which the players travel. And this cart had been built in the shop and they were showing it to me at the production meeting. And I said, well, is it, is it strong enough to hold the actors who are going to ride on stage? And, and the head carpenter says, of course it is, of course it is. And he climbed on it and it collapsed right in front of my eyes. <laughs> and everyone was at pains to say it wasn't their fault and that they had just followed all the directions they had had from the designer. And not, in no way could they be blamed at all. There was supposed to be a government spy in the uh, in the theater department and that was – I was told that was the technical director. And he was the person who was feeding everything back to the government so that we were being kept an eye on. My wife who came to visit uh, thought it was the man who gave us tea who was the actual government spy because you got you, – you didn't get coffee so much as you got tea. And the tea was extremely – powerful and very caffeinated, came in little glasses. In 1992, you became Artistic Director of the Studio Theatre
0: in Buffalo, New York. Yes. And could you explain to our listeners what an Artistic Director really does?
1: Yes, of course. Um, The Artistic Director is responsible for running... um, The artistic side of the theater. He or she is responsible for picking the plays. He or she is responsible for hiring all the artists. And under him uh, or her, there is the resident production staff, uh, the stage managers, and the production staff who build the sets and make the costumes and so on. Uh, So he supervises all that and reports to the board of directors. In addition to all that, she is also expected to go out into the community and fundraise and be the public persona of the theater and represent the theater at many, many different events in the community um, as well as be a face on which various marketing uh, campaigns can be uh, based uh, so, it's, so it's a lot of uh, administrative work and a huge amount of board politics because you interface with your board of directors who, of course, hire you. So those are the people you're going to report to. And in uh, our case in Buffalo, we had a board of between 30 and 40 when I was there. And that was broken down into many committees. And uh, the the most arduous committee I remember ever attending was the finance committee because that used to meet every month at 8 o'clock in the morning. And 8 o'clock in the morning uh, is not a good time for theater people because you're up till 11 or 12 or 1 or 2 in the morning usually dealing with this or that or the other. And then you're supposed to be at your best at 8 o'clock in the morning. The other thing, of course, is that I, I'm not my best with balance sheets. Or accounting terms, which is why I'm not an accountant. Uh, so that was so it was almost like a foreign language to me, uh, very difficult. Uh, I found the the side of the job that dealt with administration, with fundraising, with being out in the community, really difficult. Uh, the part that I enjoyed doing, with choosing and rehearsing plays, uh, was wonderful. But that was often overshadowed by the uh, all the other parts of the job that go into making what the artistic director must do.
0: What was the artistic mission of the company? What kind of players did you specialize in?
1: I don't know that we specialized in any particular kind of plays, although I, sh- I have to say, I'll well, we go and correct that now, I did do a retrospective of Tennessee Williams' works over five years, And we got a nice grant to do that. And I produced Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and The Glass Menagerie and Summer and Smoke and A Streetcar Named Desire uh, and uh, Suddenly Last Summer, Uh, one each year. And whilst I directed The Glass Menagerie and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I had three other directors um, direct the other three. And my aim was to, to show our audiences a, a, very, a number of different takes on how one might produce and direct Tennessee Williams uh, in this day and age. And it was, I think, a very successful retrospective. Um, I liked all the productions, and there was some extremely good work and some stunning visual uh, designs uh, associated with that. We also started a second stage, uh, and ran that for two or three years and did plays that I could not do on the main stage, plays like Angels in America, for example, um, or plays by David Hare or plays uh, like um, How I Learned to Drive, plays that, that my conservative community would not, would not have liked to have seen on the main stage.
0: It seems that you need all sorts of skills to be an artistic director and a director juggling lots of balls and keeping so many things in the air at yes, one Yes, you time. do.
1: And I don't think – I, don't think, I mean, while there are – while there definitely are skills that overlap between being a director and being an artistic director, they are not at all – they don't at all go um, together. They're not necessarily compatible I know uh, artistic directors who are very successful artistic directors and not very good directors. And I know very good directors who are hopeless artistic directors. Uh, it's, it's an unusual combination of skills and talents that uh, an artistic director needs. And they don't often coalesce. Uh, they didn't in my case. I didn't think I was a particularly good artistic director. And I certainly don't want to do the job again. <laughs> I've had enough
0: of it. So, so what was the final straw that broke the camel's back?
1: I don't know That it was a final straw that broke the camel's back. I think I just got weary of um, – well, all right. I can say the final straw that broke the camel's back was having to produce Tuesdays with Maury. And what happened with it? Oh, it was fine. I mean, uh, but I had to direct it. And I think it's just a vacuous, sentimental, manipulative piece of writing. That is, and I apologize to people who may think Tuesdays with Mori is a wonderful piece of uh, literature. I think it's um, manipulative in the extreme and emotionally dishonest because it is so manipulative. Uh, that's not to say there aren't honest moments in it. There are but uh but as far as the play was concerned it was manipulative in the extreme i could i could tell when the first handkerchief would come out at every single performance and uh that's not the sort of theater i'm interested in doing and uh, we were only doing that because uh we were desperate to keep our subscribers and we were battling because people kept leaving buffalo and erie county and th- uh in 2001 i think uh there were less people living in buffalo than there were in 1901 the city was has, had been in decline since the mid 1970s and continued and if your audience leaves the area eventually you're going to run out of audience and funding had dried up after 911 so it was it was a very very difficult time and the theater eventually closed its doors well that's really too sad it is It is. It was a lovely space, and there were many, many very talented people who worked there. Tell us about your second musical selection, Leonard Cohen's The Stranger Song. The Stranger Song. I love Leonard Cohen. I've always liked Leonard Cohen. Uh, I love the lyrics. Um, Many people say he hasn't got a very good singing voice. Okay, he hasn't got a very good singing voice, but there's wonderful insight and fantastic imagery to his songs. And The Stranger Song in particular because... Uh, I feel in my career, I've been leaving all the time. I've been arriving places and leaving places and not staying um, anywhere.
2: It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man It's hard to hold the hand of anyone Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender And then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind You find he did not leave you very much Not even laughter Like any dealer, he was watching for the card that is so high and wild, he'll never need to deal another. He was just some Joseph looking for a manger. He was just some Joseph looking for a manger.
0: You're listening to Profiles, and our guest this evening is theatre director Gavin Cameron-Webb. I'm Murray McGibbon.
3: Production support for profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving Central and Southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: Gavin, more recently you've been working as a freelance director. Many of our students here at IU aspire to become a freelance director. What advice would you give a young chap or gal, for that matter, (laughs) trying to establish a career in the theater as a director?
1: Meet as many people as you can. Uh, Go on trips and meet people. Um, Go and live in a large urban center like Chicago or New York or Seattle or uh, Washington on the East Coast or Los Angeles on the West Coast and see as much theater as you possibly can. And... Go to theatres where you like and admire the work. I would say that that would be my advice. Um, as the difficult thing about directing is that you don't audition. I mean, there isn't there isn't a formal way of getting a job. It's not like being an actor where you get an audition and you go and they like you or they don't. That never happens with with being a director. It's all about relationships, and it's all about uh, having uh, having some sort of uh, Sympathical with the with the person who's hiring, so it's uh, it's very difficult. It's not an easy thing to do, and most directors do something else first. I was an actor. I've known other directors who were stage managers or or, or even MBAs. I mean, the chap who's running the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival, for example, has an MBA, but he was ju- he was a child actor. So there are many different routes to becoming a director, and of course um, that. Biases you a little when you are a director, um, where you came from, whether you were an actor or a designer or whatever it was.
0: You worked at Vienna's English Theatre. How did you get employed there?
1: I'm trying to remember. That again was uh, that was through a friend, who was who had worked there as an actor many times, and introduced me um, to the artistic director at the time, who had founded the theatre. His name was Franz Schafflenek. And uh, he had grown up in Vienna and had apprenticed with uh, Bertolt Brecht at the Berliner Ensemble and then gone to work with Inmar Bergman in Sweden and then uh, moved back to Vienna, uh, married a very wealthy American woman and started the Vienna's English Theater in a a converted recital hall in the 8th district just behind the town hall. Um, And he was a producer of great ability and flair. Uh, it wasn't j- – in the summer when I when I started to work there, I'd be doing um, fluff essentially. I did The Woman in Black was my first production then and I did a Neil Simon play I Ought to Be in Pictures um, because it was their summer season. But France um, uh, got Arthur Miller over there, um, uh, premiered uh, Tennessee Williams' play The Red Devil Battery Sign, uh, had Edward Albee over there for the world premiere of Three Tall Women. Uh, and so on. So he he was a man of vision and resources. And uh, and that was tremendous. And he and I uh, hit it off, if you like. And he decided he offered me uh, the post of being his artistic associate, uh, which was a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I agreed. But then he died before <laughs> that could that could happen. He and I didn't have any paper proving this, and we had a handshake on it. And I was about to uh, go into rehearsal with a shore play. I think it was getting married, but it may not have been. I, I don't remember precisely. Uh, he died suddenly without warning from a heart attack, um, and I went over at the funeral. And uh, that was a sort of hectic affair. Uh, his wife, uh, who had acted in the theatre all the time. Um, was going to take it over. And, of course, any arrangement I had had with her husband was scrapped immediately. And uh, she decided that uh, uh, she would give me the first play, the first production of her regime. And that was she decided it was going to be Plaza Suite. And she was going to have Horst Buchholz, a very famous German actor, uh, to star in it. Horst is, is known uh, on this side of the Atlantic for uh, at least two films, one being The Magnificent Seven and the other Whistle Down the Wind. And he has done others. Uh, Horst lived in Paris, so I was sent to Paris to meet him. And he's married to a very prominent French agent. And he had a son whose who's, uh, name is Christopher. And Christopher is a, an established uh, television star in uh, Germany. And a daughter, Beatrice, Beatrice, um, And uh, this was all fine. I met Horst. He was a charming man. And I went back to Vienna and said this would work. And Horst said it would work. So I went back to the U.S. I was living in New York at the time. And uh, three weeks later, as I was preparing to tour the plaza in preparation for the play, uh, I got a call to say the play had been changed. They now had the rights for the European premiere of I Hate Hamlet. So this was all changed. Um, And uh, instead of going to the plaza, I had breakfast with the author, Paul Rodnick, in the village. And we talked about the play. And he was very amusing. And it's a very amusing play. And uh, I went uh, to rehearse it with Horst. And, uh, of course, his son was playing the Evan Handler part. And his daughter was my assistant. And uh, it sort of unraveled from there, really. Not in anybody's fault, but... It just got to be a situation that got completely out of hand, um, and I, I had less and less control over where we were going with the with the particular production, and more and more wished when I was on the tram to rehearsals that the tram would just keep going to Budapest, but it never did. The woman Ruth, who was running the theatre now, Francis' wife, Francis' widow. Uh, was really distraught and grief-stricken, of course, that her husband had died just suddenly, just like that. Um, and she would take me into the bar after a run and give me notes and and be in, in floods of tears at what had happened. And it was extremely melodramatic all over the place. <laughs> and not at all something I'd want to repeat. Of course, the run sold sold out on the strength of Horst's name and appearance, which is why uh, she had persuaded him to do it. But uh, it uh, it was really, really tough getting to opening night. Do you have a particular directing
0: style? If audiences come and see a production by you, what can they expect to see?
1: I hope a play that will amuse and engage them. I don't know that I have a particular style. I tend, um, as a as a director, to to work more theatrically than realistically. Uh, although I, the truth of the emotion, the truth of the moment, is paramount. But in terms of staging and design, I like to be theatrical because I think the theatre's one strong point is imagination, the imagination of the audience, not the imagination necessarily of the actors and director and designers, but engaging the imagination of the audience, something, a leap that can't be made in the cinema. And one recent example is War Horse, I think, uh, that Steven Spielberg has made into a film. Why, I don't know, but particularly. I saw War Horse when it was first, in in its first run at the National Theatre in England. And uh, I saw it in December, and I saw it at the Olivier Theatre, which I think seats about two thousand people, and it was packed. I mean, the whole run was sold out, which is often the case. And and how fabulous is that? That the theatre is absolutely sold out, and it's booking uh, to the end of two thousand and thirteen. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> and we had to queue for um, standby, and, and we got we got seats. But the whole the the idea of the play was that the horses were puppets. And there were three people handling the horse. And after five minutes, that was a horse. And that's your imagination at work. And because it was a horse that was a theatrically realized horse, it was somehow more involving than had it been real. Had it been real, one would have had a completely different relationship. But it was a really theatrical device that brought the audience into the play. And they were with it from beginning to end, um, through the long, the very the long uh, production, and and as you said, it's booking now till 2013. It is a huge hit. It is transferred out of the National out to the West End, of course, to, for for its commercial run. But that's what I think theatre can do: stimulate our imaginations and enrich our lives in a way that cinema can't. Cinema does other things. Uh, so, so the two, two are very different.
0: Looking back on your long career, is there a production that stands out as being something that you felt, yes, I really got that right, and it was a huge <laughs> artistic and commercial success?
1: Well, there are a few actually, I'm pleased to say. There was the Glass Menagerie I did uh, in, in Buffalo and it transferred to Syracuse. Um, and uh, I, uh, I was just very fortunate in my mix of actors and designer, that it all came together to, I, I, I thought, to realize um, a very poetic uh, production. And I loved being in the audience, and I loved watching the play. Uh, another one was Twelve Angry Men, um, which I did and uh, a long time ago, and uh, that was riveting. That sold out its run entirely. I was in Buffalo at the time, and after the first week, you couldn't buy a ticket. Um, and it it was it was the production that began the Twelve Angry Men sort of thing. That uh, because a friend of mine saw it, he was up directing a production, and he suggested to Scott Ellis that he might do Twelve Angry Men on Broadway, and that's how that happened. Um, but it was tremendous. It was tremendous fun to do. A long time ago, I did a Hamlet with Val Kilmer, um, and I thought we nailed that, uh, particularly because. It was in 1988 and, uh, and it was – I felt the play was all about um, our willingness to tolerate corruption in politics and deceit in politics. And
3: uh,
1: it, that explains the world. I'm, I was looking through the lens of the play, of course. Elsinore is incredibly corrupt. But the story of Hamlet happens all the time all the time. You read about it every day in one country or another. That same sort of thing is going on. So we updated it. It was a modern dress production. And uh, we looked for all the humor, all the biting, sarcastic, nasty humor that's in the script. And Val was terrific in that. Uh, He was was a wonderful, wonderful uh, actor and partner in the production and worked so hard Uh, to get there he he um, went back to New York I think three months before we began rehearsals in uh, to hook up with his old teachers at the Juilliard school and and work on the verse and work properly to know what he was actually going to be talking about and that really paid off and that was one that I had great fun in doing.
0: You married to a director, Jane I am, Page. Yes,
1: yes. I tell her what to do on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, <laughs> and she tells me what to do on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturdays. So and we toss for Sundays.
0: So my question to you is: Are there any benefits or drawbacks of
1: being married to another theatre director? Well, the great benefit is that you understand completely what the other, what your partner is going through, um, and she understands what you're going through. So that's huge. You can't you can't buy that. The drawback is, of course, that directing takes a tremendous amount of work and immersion and that when you're in in production, in rehearsal in production, that's your focus. And everything else sort of gets forgotten um, or or put by the wayside. Well, you know yourself as a director. That's what happens. The production just takes over. So your life gets put on hold and your partner gets put on hold essentially. Yeah, and... That's just the way it is. Have there been dark times and
0: hard times
1: in your career? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, anybody's career, there have been dark times and hard times. Economically, the hardest time was uh, I was in New York um, out of work at the particular time, not having a production. I was teaching at Juilliard, but they don't pay uh, very much. And uh, I couldn't afford... To live in New York on a salary, I was being paid at Lincoln Center, so I was moonlighting as an assistant in the French department at New York University. <laughs> I that was a most peculiar arrangement yeah um dark times uh, uh i I think a dark time was being fired from the Boston Shakespeare Company um, which was bizarre to me uh, I understand. I understand why it happened. I'm sorry it did, It happened the way it did. Um, I did not see it coming. Um, and I was in rehearsals for Julius Caesar at the time. And it was the Ides of March, I kid you not. And the whole town was blanketed in fog coming off the bay. And I was summoned to meet the chairman of the board at 6 o'clock in the evening on the Ides of March and told to pack my bags. No
0: wonder you said bounced out of Boston a (laughs) little earlier. Indeed. (laughs) Maybe a title for an autobiography. (laughs) So what is next for you, Gavin?
1: I have no idea, but that's all right. We're moving to Orange County in California from Denver. And I'm going to – when we're finished here in May, I'm going to take the uh, summer to try and work out how we're going to do that and how big we're going to make the move and organize it
0: so nothing after your contract with Indiana nothing after University my contract ends. but that,
1: you know if that happens many 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 times you just get used to it something will turn up it always does
0: but there's still no business like show business there's no
1: business like show business absolutely nothing like a company of actors nothing like the camaraderie of the business nothing like the perceptions and ideas of designers
0: Tell us about your last musical selection.
1: My last musical selection is Weltweit by Agricantus. I just like the rhythm and the life in that piece. Um, I like the mix of sounds that Agricantus has uh, the liveliness, the energy, uh, the expansiveness, the international feel of it all. Uh, that's what I like.
0: We've been talking with international theatre director. Gavin Cameron Webb. Thanks for being with us today, Gavin.
1: Not at all, Murray. My pleasure.
0: This is Murray McGibbon for Profiles, and thanks for listening.
3: The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922. With residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville. Local pride. Global technology. Information at smithville.net.